More than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. There's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Grace Dietzler. I am Gabriel Sonny Ayaya. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of studies. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature research and personal stories on one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoctoral at OSU and you are interested in coming on this show or you just want to find out more about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out at our blog at blogs. Inspiration, where you can find, find out all about our up-and-coming up guests and link to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are very excited to be joined by Emily Schmelzer. Emily is a fifth-year PhD student in the Department of Microbiology, and she's here today to talk all about coral viruses with us. Welcome to the show, Emily. Hi, thank you for having me. We're so excited to have you on the show. Um, So when most people think about coral reefs, they probably picture beautiful, colorful arrays of branching structures coming out of the ocean floor. Uh, But corals aren't just structures. They're actually animals. Can you tell us a little bit about corals and what makes them so special? Uh, Yes. So corals are animals, like you said. Uh, They are invertebrates. They're super old. They evolved millions of years before flowering plants, for example. And so they've had lots of time uh, to evolve and sort of like build like niches in different environments in the ocean. And uh, yeah, they're a foundation species and they support like over 25% of biodiversity in the ocean. Wow. Yeah. Even though they only make up it's like less than... 1% of the ocean floor. That's like a a little fact that we love to just throw around. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So they don't take up all that much room, but they're they're really key parts of these ecosystems. Yes. And and where are coral reefs typically found? Uh, Yeah. So they're typically found um, near the equator in really warm uh, oligotrophic waters, which means that there's not like a ton of primary production. And so you get those really clear uh, sort of turquoise blue waters that you see in like photos of of coral reefs. And so they're supporting tons of marine life. And um, because of that, they also support a ton of like coastal communities worldwide. Okay, that sounds good. Well, now looking at viruses, is there any difficulty in you know, finding, studying viruses in the ocean? What are the possible difficulties that could be encountered when it comes to studying viruses in the ocean? 
Uh, it's super difficult uh, just because they're really small and, um, you know, most virus research historically has been on like human disease, human pathogens, obviously because it's directly applicable to us or, you know, different um, uh, terrestrial animals like cows, livestock, that type of thing. And so marine viral ecology is um, sort of a relatively newish field, like within the last like 20 years or so, people have really started focusing on the viruses in the ocean. And so um, uh, sort of isolating them from their coral hosts is is pretty difficult just because you get like a lot of other uh, organisms like present in your sample other than the viruses. So so I want to back up here for a second. There are viruses on corals. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are viruses on corals. What, um, what are they doing there? What and what other organisms? <laughs> There's tons of other organisms. Uh, we don't really know like what coral or what viruses are doing on corals just because um, it is relatively new and like there's so many different roles that they play. Um, so uh, the coral animal itself is uh, sort of made up of the animal, different protists, bacteria, archaea. Um, they have a symbiotic partnership with a dinoflagellate algae called Symbiodiniaceae. Uh, and there's also viruses. And what do these, what do the corals get from these symbiotic relationships? And what do they give? Uh, so corals, uh, with that symbiotic dinoflagellate, uh, Symbiodiniaceae, they get energy. So that uh, Symbiodiniaceae are able to photosynthesize, which means that they harness light and turn that into energy and ATP, which feeds the coral and gives it its energy and they give the Symbiodinaceae a place to live, basically. Protection from protection, all the things that want to eat Protection from all the things, yes. <laughs> and so all of those things together, um, all those different microbes and organisms all together form the coral holobiont. And so every individual organism, like part of the coral holobiont, uh, contributes to overall coral health. And what are some of the ways some of the other members of this coral holobiont contribute to their health? You mentioned there are protists and bacteria. Yes. <laughs> so uh, corals have like what's called a surface mucus layer on the outside. Um, so they have like the mucus and then the tissue and then the underlying skeleton, which is made of calcium carbonate. Um, and each of those different uh uh, structures on the coral have a different sort of microbial community. And the ones on the surface, for example, um, you know, the bacteria could be part of different activities like nutrient cycling, or sometimes they have antimicrobial properties to protect them from other pathogens. Um, and yeah, a lot of them are implicated in disease and coral mortality. And but we know like there's a lot of research on coral bacteria and like the different microbes in the surface mucus layer and how that contributes to overall coral health. But viruses, for example, are 10 times more abundant on the surface of coral than in the surrounding seawater. Wow. <laughs> and viruses are super abundant, right? They're like one of the most abundant or well, I don't know if you can call them an organism. We call them, That's I, we always debate. say entities. Entities. They're, <laughs> they're the most abundant entities on, on the, the planet, earth. right? Yes, on the earth. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, so kind of going back to the earlier question, some of the difficulties of studying them, they're kind of drowned out by all the other things that are there. It's hard to figure out what they are and what they're doing. So as a coral virus researcher, how do you even begin to approach that? Yeah, it's um, there's a lot of different ways to do it. The way that I do it is <laughs> is fun, but it's also really difficult. So I go out into the field and um, when I'm taking a sample of coral, I take a pair of bone cutters, which is exactly what Intense. it sounds like it is. <laughs> it's made for cutting human bones. Um, but I, <laughs> I take a pair of bone cutters and I snip off like a tiny piece of coral I put it in some preservative to uh, preserve its genetic material, the DNA and the RNA. Uh, And so then I extract all of the DNA from that one sample. And so that ends up being like all of the DNA from the coral animal itself, the host, all of the protists, all of the uh, symbionts, the bacteria, archaea, fungi, algae, um, and the viruses. And so then I sort of have to like, I do this process called metagenomics, which... uh, All right, break that down (laughs) for us. Yeah, I know. (laughs) That's a mouthful. (laughs) So all of our genetic material of every organism is um, contained within our genome. And so in one sample, I have the DNA from all of the genomes of all of those organisms present in that sample. And so I kind of have to like parse out which genes are coming from which organism. And that's how I sort of get to the viral DNA. It it sounds like your methodology is almost the same compared to um, the research focus on human virus. Is there any difference between the method you use in studying the virus and um, the method still towards human virus? Is Is there any difference between the two methods? Um, I guess I'm a little biased, but I would say that studying human viruses is probably easier. (laughs) And that really has to do with like, uh, sort of the database that we have available for like virus annotations and for sort of discovering like what viruses are where and what they're related to. And obviously human viruses are a lot more well studied, uh, than sort of marine viruses, especially uh, coral viruses, um, and so a lot of the stuff, a lot of the viral DNA that we get back, you know, we try and annotate it. We compare it to other viruses and most things are unknown. Um, and we also, you know, only around like 1% of our total DNA product in any one sample is going to be viral DNA. And, and sometimes it's less than that. And so it is. It's pretty difficult. <laughs> I would say it's harder than human viruses, but I'm sure there's some human virus people out there like, no way. <laughs> but it sounds to me like a, a big part of the difference is with the human viruses, you usually you get a sample that has your virus in it and you usually have something existing to compare it to, to say, oh, this matches up with something we found before. But that's not the case with your with your coral viruses. It's not usually the case. Usually. I mean, we have some... Uh, other marine viruses that we can compare it to. But um, a lot of these like specific virus, because a lot of times like viruses evolve very closely with their hosts that they're infecting. Mm. So whether they're infecting like coral tissue, eukaryotic cells, um, or whether they're infecting bacterial cells and their bacteriophage, 
their genes are going to be really similar to their hosts in a lot of ways as they've co-evolved over, you know, millions of years. And viruses also evolve really quickly because mm. they have much smaller genomes. We have... all saw that during the COVID-19 yes, pandemic. <laughs> I know. Now everyone knows so much about viruses. <laughs> Uh, yes, they have super small genomes. Uh, they have a lot less genes that they need to have in general because they just sort of hijack their hosts, um, <laughs> sort of replication machinery. And they're like, hey, replicate my genome instead. So, yeah, parsing out those different genes between hosts and viruses also is has been pretty challenging. And, and one thing that we kind of talked about during our pre-interview that I wanted to bring up here as well is that, and, and you kind of alluded to it, because they evolve so closely with their hosts, hosts, including humans, have like a ton of viral genes. Yes. In our genome. Yes. <laughs> so we're part virus, basically. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, viruses are also able to sort of incorporate some of their genes into their host genomes. It's like one... Um, type of like viral phase that you can have. And so in a lot of other animal uh, DNA or plant DNA, uh, you have lots of different viral genes. Um, and we have some that we found in corals uh, in our lab. One of our postdoctoral associates, uh, Dr. Kalia Bustolas, found some endogenous viral elements mm. in some uh, endosymbionts in corals. And that was pretty cool. So basically just some viral DNA coming along for the ride. Yes, viral <laughs> DNA and everything forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> so your research is specifically focusing on viruses, on these corals, um, on coral reefs outside of the French Polynesian island of Morea. Can you tell us a little bit about your research project and what you're trying to, to look at? Uh, yeah. So I have this very long time series of corals that I've been sampling uh, for about three years. And like you said, it's on Morea, which is in uh, the French Polynesia Islands. And so we sampled around 400 corals all around this entire island. Um, that's individual colonies. Wow. <laughs> and we uh, sampled them twice a year in like the rainy season and the dry season. And we went back to those same individual colonies every time to try and see if we could, uh, number one, characterize what viruses are even on the corals, because we just we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and additionally, how those viral communities are structured based on their coral host species and based on the different types of reefs that they are found on. And so we, I sort of looked at three different coral species and three different reef types um, I'm especially interested in the reefs that are closest to the shore, which are called the fringing reefs. And that's because they have the most um, impact from like human activities, mm. for example. So that could be um, tourism, fishing, uh, nutrient pollution, all kinds of all kinds of human things, anthropogenic activities. So those are the ones I am the most interested in. When it comes to um, the choice of your study area, is there any particular, why are you interested in studying that particular, making that your study from that particular place? Why not other island? What is so special? What is that special thing about 
the French Polynesian island and not any other island. Uh, yeah. So what is so special about uh, the island of Morea? Yeah. And uh, I didn't really get to choose this <laughs> project, but I did kind of choose it. Um, I actually did my my research for my master's degree on Morea and... Um, you know, the, it's it's a very popular tourist destination because of the corals and also because of the Tahitian people, because they are so friendly and generous and kind and they love sharing knowledge about the reef. Um, so for me, like, I want to keep going back to Marea um, because it's extremely beautiful and I love just interacting with the Tahitians and sort of getting to know their culture and it it sort of like makes you and like understand like why your research is important because you see the the people in the communities that the reefs are supporting mm-hmm. and you're like okay so like what I'm doing is mm-hmm. it does sort of make a difference it is important sense. so yeah yeah that's that's really beautiful you're actually interacting with and and seeing the results of well maybe not the results of your research not the results. <laughs> <laughs> knowing knowing what your work is ultimately contributing to yes um, and is there there's a a long-term project going on in Morea is there not uh yes so my research sort of the goal with it was sort of to incorporate my data set um, into the larger Morea coral reef long-term ecological research project um the acronym for that is the MCRLTER. And so there's tons of researchers from all over the world who work um, on station on Morea as part of the MCRLTER. And they've been taking uh, tons of data on these coral reefs, like, and that includes like benthic diversity and fish diversity and percent coral cover and nutrient data, temperature data for, you know, a, a really long time. Um, so we have lots of data that already exists about those reefs and sort of now we're getting into the age of, of microbes. Everybody love my, loves <laughs> microbes. And so we're hoping to incorporate our long-term data set into the MCR LTR data set. Oh, that's very cool. So there's, there's a lot of rich data sets that you can kind of draw on. Yeah. And it's, it's nice to share, share data, yeah. you know, like we generate data so quickly, but there's tons of data out there that we can already use and that's really nice for coral research because mm-hmm. you know we have to pay money to get to these faraway places and um think about like those carbon emissions from like mm-hmm. our flights and mm-hmm. you know our boat usage and so if there's all this existing data like how can we have this big cohesive sort of community and project and have this data publicly available that other people can do research on coral reefs without ever having to visit a coral reef and I, I think you bring up a really great point there about your research, which is kind of focused on these very delicate ecosystems, which are threatened by climate change, which I, I think we should talk about. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and being the researchers that study those and being very aware of those impacts and kind of finding that balance of how do you contribute to the research without contributing to the the, the things the that problems, are the problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's. I, I feel like we can't talk about coral reefs without talking a little bit about <laughs> how climate change is affecting them. Everyone's heard about like coral reef bleaching. Yes. Um, 
Can you talk a little bit about that and also maybe how, or maybe, yeah, how the viruses maybe come into this? Okay, yeah. Uh, So like you were saying, coral bleaching um, is caused by increased sea surface temperature. And uh, so when that happens, the coral animal just sort of like freaks out. It's like too hot. It's like, no, I'm too hot. (laughs) And so it expels its endosymbiotic algae. um, And if you remember, like, those are the ones that photosynthesize and give the corals its energy. And so when you look at like a picture of a coral reef, um, all that color that you were describing of like mm-hmm. a reefscape of the corals, that's coming from those symbiodinaceae. And when they expel them, they turn white uh, as it exposes like their calcium carbonate skeleton underneath. And that's why it's called coral bleaching. Mm. And so they've just expelled their main source of energy and food. And so if the temperatures don't cool down, they essentially just starve to death and they die. And it's very sad. (laughs) And of course, as you know, the earth gets warmer from uh, anthropogenic impacts and climate change, we're seeing a lot more coral bleaching and um, mass mortality and, Especially on Maria, like we've had several consecutive bleaching events um, mm. within the past few years, and you know, you go to these these sites that you know and love, and the corals that you know and love, and they're dead, and it, it can be it can be really sad. <laughs> and so, one of my projects, uh, like you were talking about, what are the viruses doing? One of my projects, we happened to be sampling during one of the massive bleaching events in March 2019. And so part of my dissertation research um, will be focusing on sort of how those uh, coral viruses shift uh, during bleaching events and mm-hmm. sort of how those assemblages change if they change and if that's different across reef types and if some species or reefs are more susceptible. Uh, so we know something's happening. We just don't know what it is yet. So that, that means that you're... Um one of the things you plan to do is to look at how the corals can build what they call adaptive capacity to the impact of climate change. Uh, if we're looking at the, if that, what we're considering is like adaptive capacity to climate change, it's possible. So all of the viruses um, on coral reefs like are, you know, infecting their host cells. So as those different like hosts evolve or adapt to climate change, then you're, totally right that the viruses might also be adapting and changing in response to that. Um, I don't know if we'd be able to see that during just one bleaching time point, but uh, definitely in like a longer time series. And it's kind of nice that I do have Mm -hmm. my sort of like baseline data points on each side of that bleaching event to sort of look at those changes. So yeah, you're totally right on the money. If you're just now joining us, you are listening to Inspiration Dissemination on KBVR Corvallis. We're talking with coral microbial ecologist Emily Schmelzer. Uh, So I want to pivot a little bit here. Some people might be interested to know that even though you study coral reefs in the ocean, you actually grew up in a desert. (laughs) Um, So how did you how did that happen? How did you end up studying marine biology? Uh, Yeah, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and 
For anyone who knows me in real life, they already know that because <laughs> I'm very proud to be from New Mexico and I talk about it all the time. Um, and yeah, I've always been really interested in biology and nature. And, you know, a lot of that stems from like, you know, my dad would come home and he'd just have these like smashed scorpions like in little <laughs> bottles that he would like find in the road he'd be like look at this smashed dead scorpion and I'd be like weird cool weird and I you know I didn't really know what to do with that but I got you know really into just looking at bugs and spiders and um, I joined a research lab studying insects and spiders and later did a research project on West Nile virus um, and when I was in probably high school, like on our, our public, um, public station, TV station, they had on PBS, they had like a Nova special that was about cuttlefish. And I was like, whoa, I was like, that is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. I want to be close to it. I want to like be in its place where it lives. <laughs> and so that was like what really started it and then I saw like another Nova special about like coral reefs and um, they were interviewing this this researcher uh, named Dr. Ruth Gates in Hawaii who was looking at like assisted evolution for corals and like coral bleaching and that sort of just like I was like that's what I that's what I want to do one day seems pretty rad for you know from for someone from the desert we don't have any water <laughs> so you're like yeah I want to like be in all of the water <laughs> as much water as possible as much water as possible <laughs> so you st you started out studying um in college I presume uh insects yes spiders insects and spiders yeah and West Nile virus so you kind of got started with the viruses a little early <sighs> I did but not like the way that I am am doing it doing it now my very first um biology class in college was molecular and cellular biology and it was so boring <laughs> I was like I can't believe people do this all the time and now you're doing what a it. bunch of boring morons <laughs> I can't believe people care about microbes this much and now I am that person <laughs> I love microbes <laughs> yeah and then you moved into corals when you were in your master's program? Uh, yes. So I didn't really want to do insect and spider taxonomy and systematics forever. And so I kind of just applied to um, some master's programs on a whim. And they were like, what do you want to study? And I was like, I want to study coral reefs. And like somehow I got in. <laughs> and... Yeah, they were like, "Do you know how to do you know how to scuba dive?" I was like, "No." <laughs> it's like, "In what universe would I know how to scuba dive?" Um, so yeah, they taught me how to do scuba diving. I went to Indonesia and took this like really quick marine ecology, marine biodiversity course as like part of this big research grant that my new advisor was part of and stuck my face in the ocean for the first time and <laughs> Yeah, and it was it was incredible. I'll I'll never forget that. And the rest is history. It's yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> so, what ultimately brought you to Oregon State? How did you end up here? 
Because we don't have coral reefs off the coast of Oregon. You don't. Right? You don't. Uh, so I, all my research that I was doing during my master's degree, I, I wasn't originally going to study any sort of like microbial thing, but my project just sort of like morphed into that. Like that's um, how research happens often. Yeah, it just it just happened. Uh, one of our field seasons in Indonesia got canceled, and uh, they were like, "You want to do one in Moran?" So I was like, "Sure," and ended up doing a microbial project. And um, my ad- now advisor, Dr. Rebecca Vega Thurber, needed a laboratory technician and a field technician, basically someone who could like go into the field independently and like work on this big research grant that she got and. I was like, yeah, I, I can do that. So she hired me um, originally as her lab manager. And then after about a year and a half, she took me on as a PhD student. And yeah, so my master's research um, sort of dovetailed really nicely into the sort of work that she does in her lab here at Oregon State University. Yeah. I think it's very obvious that you, you're passionate about what you're doing. So can you tell us what's, is there any difficult challenge you've actually encountered, you know, from your master's program or research till now, what can you say specifically has been your, your most difficult moment, you know, in OSU, you know, in your quest to, you know, doing your research, carrying out your research, what has been your most difficult moment as a researcher in OSU? What has been my most difficult moment as a researcher? And I would say that for me, it is the learning curve of <laughs> uh, marine science and marine ecology for someone who's from the desert, um, especially during my master's degree. Most other people um, at the marine lab where I was studying had grown up on the coast, grown up next to the ocean, had you know spent their whole childhoods and lives like being at the beach and learning about marine life. And I asked a lot of questions that I'm sure other people in my classes were like, why doesn't she know this? (laughs) And so getting over that sort of like initial, like very steep learning curve for me and like feeling kind of silly and like feeling like I was like behind, um, behind everyone else who was like there with me. Uh, that was really difficult. And, um, I'd say the other probably most difficult part of my research has been the learning curve for the um, computational aspects of my Mm -hmm. research. Uh, You know, I have tons of data that I'm generating and analyzing uh, from all of my metagenome samples. Um, I think we talked about this before, but I have like, yeah, I have billions of like sequencing reads of DNA data. And so I sort of have to basically put those all together like a puzzle (laughs) (laughs) Uh, with using bioinformatics and computational tools. And uh, that has something I had never done before. And I I didn't really have someone teach me initially. And so I just kind of had to figure it out. (laughs) Um, And yeah, that also comes with a lot of like imposter syndrome of like, what am I doing? (laughs) Is this okay? (laughs) I think that's a really poignant thing to talk about and think about when it comes to grad school. So many people enter feeling like they're the only ones in their programs who don't know anything. Um, But it's, it's 
a common experience. Yeah. It's probably like every grad student feels that way, yeah. at least at some point. At least at like, one point. <laughs> <laughs> and it's important to realize, I guess, that you're not alone. And that's how you learn things. Like, if you yeah. already knew everything, you would already have a PhD. Yeah. <laughs> Just make tons of mistakes, make a fool out of yourself. <laughs> I, um, in my master's degree on one of my, my marine ecology finals, uh, there was some question about like a surf perch. It was like, oh, what would happen like to the, what, how do, what happens to surf perch when kelp forests disappear? And like, I saw that word and I was like, surf perch is probably a bird. And it's not a bird. It is a fish. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that, that was my first assumption, too, was that it was a bird. Yeah, but you're not a marine scientist. I know. <laughs> I know. And so for me, like, I was like, I wrote on my final. I was like, I'm going to assume that this is a bird. And here's what would happen. And then I saw my professor later and I was like, so what if, like, I wrote that I thought that a surf perch was a bird? And he laughed so hard he had to like put his hands on his knees his like face got super red and like it wasn't it wasn't like mean or malicious like but I'll never forget like being like I'm pretty sure that this is a bird and being like okay so sometimes imposter syndrome you're like yeah yeah that's real (laughs) but now you will never never I will never ever forget about it it ever comes up again it has come up again and I was like this is a fish for sure (laughs) now you know yeah Wonderful. <laughs> you know, that's that's the best way to learn. Make mistakes. What is it that Miss Frizzle says? Get messy. Make mistakes. Oh, my God. I haven't thought about Miss Frizzle since for like two decades. <laughs> <laughs> Big science icon of mine. Yeah. Uh, so as we're kind of winding down the show here, um, we have a couple traditions. And first, I want to ask you about your favorite Thing about your research we kind of talked about some of the challenges um but what's what's something that you really love about what you do something that I really love about what I do is I love field work it's really long hours um you know lots of like really intense physical labor for scuba diving but I get to work in these really beautiful places um surrounded by beautiful like marine life that I I care about and I get to know my my corals (laughs) so like we've tagged them all with you know individual tags that have numbers on them and I'm always like oh that's you Pasolapra 505 like hey haven't seen you in a while and like your friends yeah it like feels like I like know them (laughs) so I would say definitely like being in the field and like being able to do hands-on research like that and really make that connection um, has been pretty integral to like my entire scientific mm-hmm. career. And it, you know, it keeps me, keeps me interested, keeps me going. So are you, are you thinking of, you know, building a, a long-term career in this, in this part we've chosen? Uh, yes, I would definitely like to. I love, I love coral reef research. Um, and I have met so many wonderful scientists and researchers along the way. And, you know, like I was saying, you get to know the the local people who like live and are directly affected by like the impacts on the reefs. Like in this case, the 
the Tahitians in, in French Polynesia. So it's definitely something I would I would like to continue doing. And, and I hope to. <laughs> and you're pretty close to the end of your program. I'm so close. <laughs> <laughs> so do you know what's next yet? Or is that still kind of I don't, TBD? It's TBD. I've put out like a couple feelers um, for different positions. And yeah, they're all in marine mm. science. So we shall see. Yeah, stick with it. Yeah. So one of our other traditions here on the show is to ask you for a piece of advice and it can be for anyone about anything and just let us know who your advice is for. Yeah, I guess my advice is for everybody. Um, I guess if we're talking specifically about grad students, my advice is to if you're in a program like or a new place or a new job or a new school or anything um, is to find and build like a community. And I think that that has been something that has been the most integral to any success that I've ever had is like finding people that are just fantastic and are interested in what mm. you're interested in and like support you and care about you. And yeah, I don't know, find that community, build that community. I know Gabriel in the in the pre-interview you and I were talking about Ubuntu like Ubuntu. yeah <laughs> I am because you are and yeah, like yeah. finding that community yeah, helping people out ideas. building that up that's that's my advice yeah. that sounds good apart from your research do you, are you involved in any other activity apart from academic activities uh, apart, am I involved in anything apart from academic activities yeah, like at OSU or just general, just you know, in general? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I started doing karate as an adult, which made me feel really <laughs> silly, but, um, has been really, really like a fun thing to do while I'm here and learn a new skill and feel really silly at something and work hard and then you're you're cool. Then you're a cool karate person after that, I guess. <laughs> Scuba diving karate person. Scuba diving karate person. Underwater karate. Now there's a there's a niche. Underwater karate. My best friend is a is an artist, a studio artist, and she welded me an underwater bike. Oh. <laughs> I think it's in her parents' house in New Mexico. A bike is it just a bike you take underwater? To bike on? Yeah, it's an underwater bike. Does it, it move or is it stationary? No, it moves. Moves. I mean, I've never tried it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I guess where are you going to put it in New Mexico? Yeah, where like just throw it in lake, the surf perch lake. There's a surf perch lake. No, oh. <laughs> there's a perch lake, and now I understand why. <laughs> Makes sense. Well, thank you. I think that advice uh, was was really spot on. Um, for our listeners that don't know, Emily and I are actually in the same cohort <laughs> yes. in our program. We know each other. <laughs> and so I strongly agree with that advice. And having having good people around you makes this experience so much less painful. Yeah, <laughs> definitely getting to know your cohort is is clutch. It's key. Yeah. Because you're all you're all in the same like process and the same part of, you know, writing, data analysis, et cetera. And you're all going through the same thing. And you also get to learn about each other's research and meet new people support yeah. each other well emily thank you so much for coming on the show yeah. 
I really enjoyed learning about corals and coral viruses and all of your research. Yeah, it was, it was interesting to have you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was so fun, actually. I don't know why it took me so long to say yes. I am just glad you did. Um, all right. And to carry us out of the show, you have picked our outro song. Would you tell us what song that is and why you picked it? Uh, yes, it's Slippery People by Talking Heads. And I chose it because I, I kind of feel like a slippery person <laughs> especially when i'm underwater i'm very slippery <laughs> and i just love the talking heads and with that here is slippery people by the talking heads Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. The theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Haman. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Holbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.